Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 14th, 2020, and this is episode 2660, 2660 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's show, we're going to be talking about COVID, but really, this show will be timeless. Because this is not what to do about COVID. This is about the future of society. And this is not going to be, they're going to line us up in FEMA camps or some crap like that. I'm not even going to really hit on some of the surveillance state things that this will be used to increase. Um, this show is actually far more optimistic in my view. We're going to be talking about really the fourth turning in today's show. And if you've never heard about that before, you'll hear a short, short version of it today. And I'll, I'll put a link to the book. It's a fascinating read. Um, and, and the man that wrote the book makes a very compelling case by going back through history and saying, well, let's take this block of history and let's take this block of history and let's take this, and, and like they're consecutive. It's not like you'll skip ahead 300 years. It's like, let's go back for like, oh, I don't know, since it's four generations for each one, let's go back like uh, uh, six, uh, 24 generations. And here's four and here's four and here's four and here's four and it's what it looks like. And uh, I'll give you all of the stages of these generations, but the, the fourth one is crisis. Sound familiar? Does it make you think of current period of time? And I'm going to give you my four turnings, which I think are far more simplified and less academic and therefore probably more accurate um, and a little bit easier to understand, a little bit easier to see. Um, we're also going to talk about the five stages of grief and how all of these cycles play together, both at a macro and a microcosm, meaning that You know, you might have the short version of the four turnings, high awakening, tra unraveling, and crisis in society as a whole over four generations, but you have that happen to individuals in their own life. It happens all the time. Knowing, forgetting, compensating, and what's my fourth turning? You'll have to wait, unless you're looking at the show notes now because you're online. If you're listening to this on iTunes or Stitcher or something like that, you'll have to wait. I'll tell you in just a minute. Don't worry. But what I want to start out with today is a quote of the day, and I don't generally quote myself for quotes of the day, but I have a law of life. Spirko's third law of life is so perfect for today's show that I have to quote myself for the quote of the day. And that third law of life is everything in the universe is a recurrent cycle. If you want to know what's coming next, just look what happened before. And it's really true. I mean, you can see it in everything. Everything is a cycle. There will be variations of the cycle. This is the the, the kind of the mitigation to this rule, or the um, yeah, it's mitigation is the best word for it. Is the the saying that history does not always repeat itself, but it it often rhymes. So there will be different changes to the chords in the chorus, kind of like a cover song, which this week happens to be about cover songs and. I might be slipping as I get older because I didn't even catch that until I was putting my bullet points together. It was like the second to the last bullet point. I'm like, oh, gee, this ties right into cover songs, right? So history is really a series of cover songs. When the next band grabs the old song and redoes it, they may change some things about it. And even if they try to do it exactly the same way, it will sound different. Some people will prefer it. Some people will prefer the original. And some people will be so sure that the cover version is the best version. They won't even believe that there was an original. You'll have to prove it to them. I remember when my uh, my my son's best friend 
as he was growing up as a kid named Zach, and he came to me, and it wasn't even a cover song, right? It was an original. But he had heard uh, Can't You See by Marshall Tucker Band on the radio. And he's like, man, Jack, you got to check out this new band. I'm like, well, who is it? He goes, they're the Marshall Tucker Band. I'm like, well, they're not new. But I don't know. Maybe they have a new song. He's like, I was like, it's called Can't You See. It's, it's like, dude, that song's older than you. And he, he didn't, I had to actually, you know, in the old, it was old school internet back then. You've got mail internet. I had to look it up and show it to him to, for him to even believe it. So... New generations or youngest generations often don't realize that they're repeating things of the old-timers. They don't even know they're doing it. They're not emulating it. That's because it's a real cycle. See, you watch the tide go out, and then you watch the tide come back in. And in the moon in its phases, the tide will go out again. When the tide goes out the second time, it doesn't go out because it's copying the previous outtide. It goes out because it's in the cycle. You got that? When the new birds that were born last year come into spring and start singing songs and breed and lay eggs, they're not copying what their parents did. They don't have a clue what their parents did. They have bird brains. They're doing it because it's the next phase in the cycle. True cycles are not dependent on what happened in the past, to repeat what happened in the past. It's really important to think about that as we go through today's show. Today's show is actually called Why the Post-COVID New Normal May Be a Lot Like the Old Normal. And in the title, I actually have New Normal and Old Normal in quotes. So I was saying I'd be doing big old Dr. Evil air quotes, New Normal, right? And I'm going to say new normal is a phrase that's been tossed around a lot lately, but it's not that it's not new to use that phrase. It gets used all the time, generally to control people, um, generally control the sheep and keep them in line. When the market crashed, the stock market crashed in 2008, dolts like Susie Orman, who were supposed to tell you how to manage your money so that that didn't destroy you, would use it to explain to you why you should now work until you're 75 or 80, and that was the new normal in her Mickey Mouse voice. Right? She would prove that she was totally useless to anyone who had not already figured that out. Of course, if you hadn't figured it out by then, um, I don't know, maybe it didn't prove anything to you. Maybe you're just like, oh, it is the new normal. And that seems to be like something people are willing to accept that phrase so easily in, in, in its misuse. This, this new normal misuse. It's, you know, today new normal seems to be designed to condition you to expect to be locked in your own home for at least a few years. And that life has changed forever. That even when those years are up, even when the, uh, the, the magic vaccine gets farted out of a magic unicorn and Anthony Fauci delivers it to him yourself with his little crown on his head and, and injects you with your salvation vaccine, that life will just never go back to normal again. COVID has changed it forever and it will always be different because it's the new normal. Never mind that humanity has survived the Black Death smallpox, typhus, yellow fever, malaria, like so many things that are so much worse and has always returned to normal. Nope, this time a virus with a death rate that is actually about 0.1%, it's different. Go to your stall, sheep. It's the new normal. I mean, that's how it's being used. But yet to me, much of what people have called normal for a long time doesn't seem very, well, normal. I grew up in the 80s. And I think for a lot of people, even if they're about my age, you know, you're, you're around 50-ish, a little older, a little younger, um, 
we still have a huge generation gap between you and I. For a lot of people, I mean, I've met people, and when I talk to them about their childhood, there is, you know, we both would enjoy watching uh, the, the Netflix series Stranger Things, and if, if we don't really like the uh, the storyline that much, because the way kids lived in the 80s is pretty universal. But the society they grew up in maybe wasn't so much, depending on where you lived. See, I did most of my growing up, the part that you really remember, because I grew up in Florida and in Pennsylvania, but I did my high school years, and like the year before high school, in, in rural Pennsylvania. And even when I was living in Florida, and I was much younger, um, I spent my summers there. And if you remember, if you think back to when you were a kid, I, I, I guarantee you, when you go like pre-13 in your age, especially when you're like as old as I am now, your hairs are gray, right? All of them, not just the ones on your head, your chest hairs, your other hairs, you're starting to turn gray everywhere. By then, if you think back to being pre-13, you're going to remember your summers, you're going to remember Christmas, and not much else. You'll remember things from other times, but you'll really remember those times. So even before I moved to Pennsylvania, I spent a, the time that you're going to remember as a kid, the for, and the freedom time, you know, when you're not going to school every day and everything's not regimented. And I always hated school, especially like middle school, elementary school. I went to Catholic, I got myself thrown out of Catholic school twice to avoid being there. So I don't really have a lot of fond memories of that. But I grew up in this part of rural Pennsylvania. And the people that I grew up around were older people. My great uncles, my grandparents, uh, elderly neighbors, etc. Uh, parents went off and did parent things like work and earn a living. And it was the older generation that children spent their time with. That generation had lived through the Great Depression. All of them were old enough, even as children during the Great Depression, that they remembered what the Great Depression was really like. They lived through World War II. And they lived through the high in the cycle we're talking about today that was the 1950s. And no matter how much society around them had changed, when you went to Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania in 1985, you were standing in mid-1950s America with the discipline of a generation that had lived through the Great Depression when it comes to finances. That's where you were. Now, that all fell apart shortly thereafter, but that's what I grew up in. So when I'm sitting talking to someone that grew up in the 1980s in South Carolina on the coast or something, or here in Dallas, Texas, where I live now, it's almost like we still have about a full generation of difference between us and our mindset into what I mean when I say old normal versus what you probably mean when you say old normal, that's not a I'm better or you're better or I'm worse or you're worse. It's nothing like that. It's just a perspective that I'm coming from. The old people that I grew up with who taught me, who told me the places to go in the woods to find things, who put a gun in my hands when I was a teenager and said, go get some meat and bring it back, those people were still living in the 1950s in their head because the 1950s were a good time for them. And even as it crumbled around them, they refused to let go of it. And they did everything they could because they pretty much had given up on my parents' generation. All of them. And I'm, I'm not about just my, my dad and my mom. I'm talking about the whole damn generation. 
you could tell that all of those old people that I grew up with went, well, our kids aren't going to listen to us. Maybe their kids will. I think it's a common theme with grandparents as well. So anchored into this mindset, where I'm coming from is the 1950s, 1960s in that high. So with that in mind, let's start off with a short version of The Four Turning, because this is a pretty big book, pretty big academic thesis. Uh, again, it's really worth the read. But the four turnings are the high. And in the book, the high is not just everything's good. It's that society is very collective in its thoughts, which is counterintuitive. Because it doesn't mean that society is collective in its thoughts as in socialism. Because that's when you hear collective today, you hear progressive and socialism immediately in your head as synonyms. Collective meaning that there's a common vision. There's a common vision to where we're going. And there actually is a lot of rugged individualism. But it's not that the... So when you move toward an awakening, where you move toward more individualism, it's not the individualism wasn't there. It's the individualism... Just kind of all line, like, I can take care of myself, but this is where we're going, and everybody's kind of going in the same direction. Then as society progresses into the next generation, you kind of have an awakening. An awakening, and you kind of look back at your, your parents, kind of like, yeah, they're, they're stuck in their ways. And, and you turn away from them, and it becomes very individualistic. But it's not really individualistic. It's more turned opposite of the prior generation because everybody's more individualistic, but yet they're, they're all also kind of going the same way. And then you have an unraveling. You have an unraveling where things start to fall apart. The, the first generation's high is so strong that it survives the awakening. But as you go into the third generation you begin to have an unraveling. Things start to fall apart. Things start to get bad. There starts to be problems. And then you have a crisis. For the last crisis, the last big crisis, it was the Great Depression and World War II. That was the crisis, which led to the new high of the 1950s that I was talking about that my grandparents' generation held on to long into and through the awakening of the next generation and tried to shove on my generation. And I don't mean that negatively, but they tried to push it to us. Here it is. Here's the baton, guys. Your parents, they, they left it go. Here it is. Take it. Do something with it. You're going to need it. We're going to be dead. We're going to be gone. Your parents are going to be old like us. You're going to be changing their diapers. And they're not teaching you this shit, so take this shit now. Crisis. <sighs> Crisis, financial fallout. Crisis, look at, look at the lunacy in government and in this, this society today before coronavirus. The total lunacy. Look at the fact that in parts of California right now, if I am a homeless person and I come up to your, your business that you pay exorbitant property taxes and an exorbitant fee to operate in the city of San Francisco, and I drop my trousers and take a shit on the front 
of your business, the police will do nothing. If you hurt me in any way for doing that, if you shove me off, if you point a gun at me and say, hey, stop shitting on my stoop, they'll arrest you. That's a crisis in of itself. See, all COVID is, is the accelerant. A lot of times we think of these, these crises as being the accelerant. So you look at World War II as the real crisis. Everything was already on fire. World War II was the gas they threw on the burning structure. In many ways, the, the, the Depression was as well. Everything was unraveling and falling apart, and the crisis had already begun, and then the accelerant hit. So I actually have my own version of the four turnings. And I think that they're a little bit more approachable and a little bit more flexible and a little bit more applicable not just to society as a whole, but individual cultures within societies and individuals within societies. We see this happen in our own lives because everything's a cycle in the micro and the macrocosm. Okay? So the first one is knowing. See, the high is really about knowing. Everybody kind of knows what the deal is. And when everybody knows what the deal is and everybody knows the rules, even if the rules aren't the best rules, if everybody kind of agrees to them, you can get along pretty well. And then what you achieve is largely based on those rules. And those rules are not necessarily laws. It's kind of a collective way that people think for the better of everybody. Again, I know that wants to make you feel like socialism. Socialism is mandated. What I'm talking about is not mandated. Because who mandates? See, because remember, this could be a society as a whole. It could be a subculture within a society. Or it could be you. Who mandates that you kind of have set your own rules and you're kind of staying the course and you're kind of getting the things done? You wrote the plan. You developed the plan. Now you're working the plan. That's knowing. Society kind of has a lot of people that are actually very individualistic at a high But they're all working a plan for themselves and for their families. Then we have forgetting. The next generation, it doesn't just, it's not really an awakening. An awakening, you know, would be more like, hey, becoming more enlightened. And not like, whoa, man, I'm more enlightened, right? Like realizing, hey, let's build on this stuff that we've already been given. No, it's a forgetting. You, it's really easy to look at the people that did all the work to get you where you are and say, ah, I can do it better. We collectively, as a society, we forget. We forget the sacrifices they made to make it so damn good for us. And then, the four turnings, they call it the unraveling. But see, the unraveling is really the compensating. All the things I'm going to talk about becoming the new normal, which is really the old normal, were already happening. My generation really did take to heart a lot of what came from the generation prior to our parents. A lot of us did learn those skills and did learn that mindset, and we never let go of it. We went off and did our own awakening and unraveling. But as this shit all happened, we are the modern homestead generation. We're the modern prepper generation. We're the permaculturists. We're already here. While it was unraveling, we already started rebuilding. We already started moving out of the cities. We already started going back to the land. We already started side hustling. Right? We, we already started building multiple streams of income that were not dependent upon somebody else. We already started to think more independently. 
we already started to think more about the next generation that you have going on during the high. The collective viewpoint of it is important that we leave something behind better, not as a catchphrase and not as society as a whole, not as a mandate that somebody else makes happen, but I leave something behind for my children and my grandchildren that I personally am responsible for that they can pick up and they can use. That's compensating. That's what, that's what the fourth turning calls the unraveling. It's actually already an attempt, as you've realized what's going on, to start putting things back together. But in the fourth turning, they call it a crisis. And I promise you I would tell you what I call the crisis. Dick punch. That's my fourth turning, the dick punch. There is never enough time to get it back together for society before the dick punch comes. And if it, this is why I call it a dick punch. Because even if you were one of the early adopters, you were the ones that started putting it back together, do you know when you're ready for a dick punch? Never. Anybody who's ever played sports, you're familiar with wearing a cup if you're a guy. right? If you have a dick to get punched, you understand this. Most men at some point in their life have done something where you wear a cup. Inevitably, sooner or later, you come to a point where you're really glad you were wearing that cup. But if it's because you got a line drive with a baseball and it hits you smack center, it helps. It doesn't make the problem go away, though, does it? It ain't like it never happened. You know, I was never dumb enough, but I saw somebody dumb enough to let their buddy kick them square in the nuts because they was wearing a cup and didn't think it would hurt. Guess what? You're never ready for a dick punch, but you're still better off wearing a cup than not. Okay? And that's the fourth turn. And that's what just happened. Dick punch. Hardcore, deep, dirty, down dick punch. That's COVID. And that's why, as I've been saying up till now, it's killing the dying. And I don't mean old people that were going to die anyway. I'm not being heartless when I say it's killing the dying. I mean public education system being wiped out. I'm telling you, man, there's a lot of parents that have figured this out now and said, hey, my kids are happier. If I can figure out how to do this and I can keep myself happier, I don't feel like I'm going to pull my hair out. If I can figure out how to make this work, I'm going to keep doing this. But that, see, there was a huge growth. Homeschooling tripled in the last 10 years before the dick punch to the public ed sector. How much growth has there been in homesteading and gardening, etc., before the dick punch? See, that's why I don't call it the unraveling. I call it the compensating. Some portion of society has looked around and gone, oh, shit, there's a dick punch coming. Let me get a cup on. Because it's not like one dick punch coming for you. It's like some maniac just running around randomly punching people in the dick. And you don't know when yours is coming. You just know that. So you can't make the crazy moron not punch people in the dick. All you can do is put on a cup and keep your eyes open. That's COVID. And it's coming for every industry that was already crumbling. The retail sector, the public education sector, the manufacturing sector. We're going to have a return of manufacturing to America. Yeah. And that was already happening. And it got dick punched, so it's moving faster. But it doesn't mean you're getting a job doing it. Because you're going to need 10% of the people to do the same job because of automation. 
So there's some other cycle, another cycle that's that's five, but it fits right in with this when we move especially to the microcosm, but it fits the macrocosm as well. So in other words, it fits the individual, and it fits society as a whole. And of course, it's the five stages of grief, Den denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. The problem is it's not being applied equally. So the average sheep, COVID's coming. Nah, it'll be fine. Flu's worse. Anger. I can't believe this happened. Bargaining. If we wear a mask and stay home, we can flatten the curve. Depression. It's the new normal. We're going to be locked up for 18 months. Acceptance. Well, I guess you, if you don't want to do this like the rest of us are going to do, you just want people to die. Except the problem with the five stages of grief is people don't generally get to full acceptance. Because full acceptance isn't you just want people to die. Full acceptance is, oh, so this is the way things are going to be. Okay, then some people are going to die. There's things we can do, but we can't shut down society. Let's go on with life. That's acceptance. Instead, what you have is a whole shitload of the sheep trapped between bargaining and depression. And that's where you're going to end up with more people killing themselves than dying of this virus. And more people dying of treatable medical conditions because hospitals are shut down and people are afraid to go to hospitals or can't go to hospitals for treatable things. And in the end, this is going to be a net loss of life by locking down the economy versus social distancing. And still, acceptance. You either accept this is what society's doing and you design your life around it, or you continue to bounce between bargaining and depression. You either accept the fact that you were already compensating and you got punched in the dick and now you got to roll around on the round and get back up, or you say, hey, I don't want to get punched in the dick again, and you wrap 40 sheets of bubble wrap around your waist. And it may or may not prevent you from getting punched in the dick again, but you can't live your life that way. Knowing, forgetting, compensating, dick punch. That's the real four, four turnings. And... When we look at it that way instead of just through the, the lens of this book, because the lens of the book is this is what happens in society and this is what's coming and this is the way it is. Where I actually believe individuals move at their own speed in both cycles versus society of a whole. We're all microcosms of the whole. I already just figured that, you know, half of my life was my dick punch. And occasionally, you know, you might get a glancing blow from that line drive. But in general, my cup is solid. That's the lifestyle I've designed. And anything, you know, if that line drive hits me square between the eyes, takes me out, kills me, or makes me not remember my name, I have a problem. Anything short of that, I'm going to be okay. No matter what the rest of society does, I'm going to be okay. I don't have to bargain. I don't have to be depressed. I'm, I'm moved so through acceptance that I'm on the, 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 the sixth stage. It comes after acceptance, action. That's the person that has a cancer diagnosis. You got a year to live. If you do all this poison technology to yourself, it won't make you live, but you might make it 18 months instead of a year. But you're going to be miserable and says, you know what? I'm going to spend all my money and go to Rio or wherever. That's action. I'm going to live my life best I can. If I can treat it, I'm going to treat it. If treating it's not going to actually give me a better chance of survival, instead of sitting around bargaining and praying or whatever that's not going to change things, I'm going to go live what life I have left. So if society's going to hell in a handbasket, okay, how do I build a good life for myself in spite of that? 
Not how do I run away and hide. How do I build a good life for myself in, in spite of that? I think that's what compensating is. Compensating is compensation for the lunacy going on around you. So one of the ways you compensate for the lunacy of San Francisco letting homeless people shit on the front porch of businesses and residential homeowners and not doing anything about it is you don't live there or you leave. When you see the massive problems that exist whenever you build a city like New York City, you either don't live there or you leave if you already live there. That's acceptance. You're not, you're not going to change that. And if it's going to change, it's going to change in its time, not your time. And you don't, you know, your life is that dash. Every day, you have one less day to live. If you live in a place where it's acceptable for homeless people to shit on your front doorstep and it's unacceptable for you to do anything about it, every day is one day lost to that fact. If you truly accept it, you figure out what you need to do to correct it. And to me, you ain't going to correct it there. You correct it by leaving. And people say, well, then how does it ever get solved? Well, number one, that's not your problem. Because your problem is leaving something behind, taking responsibility for the next generation, your next generation, not my next generation, the people you leave behind. Your, your, your sons or your grandsons or your cousins or your you know, kids or your uncle's kids or whatever. Whoever your next generation is, that's who you need to take responsibility for. And the way you have a place like that fix itself is you let them come completely in touch with their unraveling and their crisis by taking all the productive people and getting them the hell out. And eventually they'll have no place left but to put their own shit back together because you create a crisis for them. The crisis for them is you remove productive people. That's acceptance. And we move at our own speed in that. We understand what's going on around us. The first thing we want to do is deny it. There's not a problem. It's going to be okay. Some will fix it. Anger. I can't believe these people are allowed to shit on the front. And it doesn't matter. I'm just using that one because it's convenient and, 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 and relatively current. right? But I can't, I can't believe these people can take a dump. They're bargaining. Maybe we can get a law passed. or something. No, you can't. Depression, I guess there's nothing I can do. Acceptance, yes, there is. I'm the hell out of here. And take any problem, and you can run that cycle with it. So, I want kind of going back to the theme of today's show is maybe the new normal is really the old normal. I'm talking 1950s normal. Now, the 1950s were not the perfect time of nostalgia in some people's heads. There were some really bad things about the 1950s, especially when it came to institutionalized racism. But there, see, the problem is that when we look back at a, at a, a time in history, we tend to isolate that time and we say, oh, it was bad because, guess what, no matter when you look to, including 50 years from now, if you look back to now, you'll be able to pick out a bunch of shit that sucked. What we're talking about is, that doesn't mean most things sucked, or everything sucked. And there was some real good about the 1950s that had been drugged by those people into the 1980s and they tried to give it to my generation. So this is what was normal for me when I was growing up. Number one, taking care of older neighbors. You know, I tell you all those stories about me going to see old, old, you know, the old, old folks named Detsky and my great uncles and Helen, the Catchmers and all these old folks that lived on my street. I enjoyed that as a kid. Going and talking to those people, hearing their stories and stuff, and they'd always have a you know 
a buck for you or 50 cents or they'd give you a little chore to do or you could go pick raspberries in their orchards or whatever. So there was a lot of fun in it. But I was also expected to do it. You ain't, you ain't seen your Uncle Pete in a while. Why don't you go up there and check on him? Because they knew a kid coming through that door would brighten that person's day. Those people weren't old folks' homes. The only way you went in old folks' home was you needed so much care that the people that would be required to give it to you either couldn't or, well, that's about it. You had to be at a point where, like, I just can't. And a lot of times that might be a couple, and the only one left is the one half of the couple, and they're physically incapable. Or the kids live 50 miles away or 100 miles away now, and there was no one to do it, and that person just couldn't be there anymore. Otherwise, people died in their homes. They didn't die in convalescent facilities. They didn't die in nursing homes. And it was expected if you were a kid in that neighborhood, in that community, you visited those people. And again, it wasn't hard to get you to do it, but if you if you went a while without doing it, it was one of those things you got reminded to do. Kids were highly independent by, say, 10 or 11 years old. Right now, if you told if somebody said to you, well, where's, where's Billy? And Billy is your kid, and he's 11. You say, well, I sent him up the road. Where's up the road? Oh, there's an old man who lives up on top of the hill. You know, he's kind of on his own now, so I sent him up the old man up the top of the hill to, to visit. You'd be like, are you crazy? You, you start thinking about some old man being a perv or something like that. That wasn't really worried about, because number one, there was a culture within that community. That kind of thing wasn't going to go on. Anybody that was weird or somebody that was not to be trusted in a small community like that, you knew who they were. And everybody knew who they were. And they generally had to go somewhere else because they wouldn't, nobody would have them anymore. But it wasn't just that. I mean, like, when I was 10 years old, I was still living in Florida even. You know, it wasn't all just this one place. And I'd go fishing a mile from home on a bicycle. Leave at 9 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday, not come home till 7, 8 o'clock at night. Never check in all day. No one worried. There, if you could get there on a bicycle, then you could get there. That's what I was saying about, you know, like if you're my age and you watch Stranger Things, even though I thought the story kind of got a little crazy stupid, um, there's something about seeing that freedom in kids and watching it with, like, your grandkids today, and they, they're like, well, they couldn't really do that. Yeah, we did that all the time. That independence, and, and that, that didn't come as just a thing you got. It came with an expectation. You have this independence. Don't, don't abuse it. Because the thing was, everybody in a town, you know, a couple thousand people in town, you didn't know that old person across the street. You didn't know that man standing on the other side of the road that was in his 30s or 40s. You didn't know who he was as a kid, maybe. He knew who you were. He knew who, and the way we used to put it, I know who you belong to. You pulled some shit, and before you got home, your parents, grandparents, etc., knew what you did, where you did it, who you were with, how you responded when you got caught, and your friends' parents knew it too. So the independence came with a check, which is wherever you go, somebody's paying attention to what you're up to. When you wanted to pull shit and get away with it, you knew enough to go out in the woods where no one could see you. Kids had jobs. 
kids, I mean, it was normal for kids to have jobs. I, it's kind of weird to me today. You talk to, like, I remember my son got his first job. He was 16. You know, my son's 30 now to kind of place. He's, you know, he's older millennial. Um, but he's like, you know, I didn't realize until I got a job. None of my friends have jobs. He got a job because it was like, we bought him a truck. I said, there's a truck. Oh, great, I got a truck. Covered your insurance for three months. Awesome. Gas tank's half full. Oh. Yeah, we're not putting any gas in it. He goes and counts. He was always good about saving his money, saving his allowance, saving money for... Realized, like, man, I, I can go somewhere, but I can't go anywhere for a real long time without it. And as that gas budget dwindled, his impetus to get that first job went up. But that was my grandparents, my great uncles, my older community gave me that so that I was one of my generation that knew to pass that down so that we could begin our compensation early because we knew the dick punch was coming. All right? But kids had jobs, and most people had side hustles. Most people had, and it wasn't, you know, there wasn't no Uber or Lyft or no, you know, like delivering for Amazon. You know, even pizza delivery is pretty sketchy back then. There wasn't anywhere near the amount of service, especially where I grew up. There was, I'm not sure you could get a pizza delivered where I lived. I really, if you could, it never happened. I'll say that. There was a pizza place you could go to. Um, I don't think there was a pizza delivery available where I grew up in Pennsylvania. Um, yeah, that's something I never really realized. But people still had side hustles. You know, one of my first jobs, I worked in a warehouse. I'm not a warehouse. I worked in a, uh, a, a junkyard pulling parts for a guy named Muskrat Purcell. Um, my first real job, like where you had a paycheck and they took taxes out and all that shit, I worked at a turkey farm cleaning the kill floor up. And doing whatever the hell else they needed done. I got on seasonally and then I kept the job for a while. And as soon as I got something better, I quit. But kids had jobs. Like, everybody I knew had a job. Everybody I knew that had a car, had a car that was like 10, 15 years old. And there's a big difference in a 19, let's say 1975 car in 1985. And let's say a 2010 car in 2020. I know they're both 10-year periods, but a 1975 car that <laughs> that lived through the winters of the Northeast in 1985, 1986, 1987 in that realm, that was an old-ass beat-to-shit car. It was not what a 2010 you know, uh, Honda is today at all, not even close. It was at the end of its life. You could buy a 10, 15-year-old car at that time for three or $400. And if you were a kid and you had a car, you were paying more for a year of insurance than you were for your car. And you probably bought the car yourself, paid your own insurance, so you didn't have one. The first time I went by a high school, by the time my kid was in high school, and saw the cars in the parking lot, I thought it was a teacher's parking lot. It didn't even make any sense to me. But people had side hustles. Because that's how you got by. Now think about today with compensating, right? With compensating being the third turning instead of unraveling. How many people have side hustles today? 
Those are the compensators. Um, nothing useful was thrown away. Nothing useful was thrown away. When, when, when my grandma emptied a milk carton, she rinsed it out, and it would be used to freeze other things. When she, when she emptied a jar of something, she rinsed it out, and it would be used to store other things. Um, if peace foil was used to cook, and it was still in pretty good shape, it got washed and reused. I think with the dick punch of COVID, a lot of people started reusing things or using reusable things that they had never even thought about before. Because for the first time in their life, they even knew what shortage meant. They thought they knew what hungry was or shortage was. They didn't. We still knew that. We still understood that. People knew how to fix things. You didn't call a guy. It was almost an insult to like someone from my grandfather's generation that something would be broken and somebody else would need to fix it. You might call a friend to come help you with it who knew more about it than you did. But you didn't phone up a guy to fix your thing. You know, if there was a problem with the wall, you just put another layer, layer of paneling on it. I swear there's houses still up there. If those things ever catch on fire, they're going to burn for three extra days just because there's so many layers of paneling. You go into a room. I'm not kidding. I think there's rooms you could go into there, take down all the, all the layers of that old school paneling down, redo the drywall, and the room would get six inches by six inches bigger in both dimensions, maybe a foot. There's that, that much paneling on those walls. Because you just did what you had to do to get by. And people knew how to fix things. Staying away from crowded places was normal. You didn't want to be in a crowd. We call that social distancing today. We call that being smart back then. If there was a crowd, it was like an event or something like that. Like a big pool party in the summer or a concert or something. Nobody looked forward to going to Philadelphia. Even the people in Philadelphia didn't want to be in Philadelphia. The people in New York City didn't want to be in New York City. Not some of them, most of them. Almost nobody wanted to be there. It was like I had to be there. Nobody thought cramming a whole shitload of people into one place was a good idea. Hunting and foraging for food was normal. I've talked about this before, but when I was in high school, the first day at deer season, school was closed. People didn't hunt because it was sport. People hunted because, well, let's see, we got mom has a deer tag, dad has a deer tag, and mom doesn't hunt, but dad can use mom's deer tag. Brother has a deer tag, and sister has a deer tag. Well, sister, you're sleeping in the truck on the first day of deer season, so if dad or brother shoots a deer, we'll come wake you up and put your tag on the deer. And with that, we can put four deer in the freezer. If we can get one home with the same tag on, we can put five, maybe six deer in the freezer this year. And it wasn't out of greed, it was, that's me. Trout season was eight trout a day per fisherman. couple months of that. Let's put those fish away. Got into summer, you're into panfish and perch and bass, catfish. How much can we put away? Spring. Spring was all about, you know, the trout season, yeah, but it was also about picking berries. In the fall, it was foraging mushrooms. And I know some of you are like, man, I live that way now. Sure you do. You're a compensator. You didn't let everything go. I'm saying that most people live this way. 
up into the 1980s, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, most people lived this way, and they didn't let go of it. And part of me was foolish. I joined the Army, gone for a few years, went back there, didn't really pay attention when I went back, didn't really notice how much it changed. Came here, Texas, built the life. About 10 years later, took a job up in Pennsylvania, pulled into that old driveway, looked around, it all looked the same. It took me about a day to realize it wasn't mostly gone. It was all gone. Sure, there was the old person here, or the old guy there, or some guy even went to school with my age, still living that way. But the concept that people in general live that was gone. And now it's a bunch of people on welfare and food stamps or working a blue-collar job. Nothing wrong with it, just the blue-collar job part, right? Um, but most people working either are on some form of assistance, and the whole place is riddled with heroin. Full-on crisis, COVID's the dick punch, though. Plenty of people compensating, but it's the dick punch that sends everybody back. And remember, not everybody has to go back. It's a trend, okay? Gardening was normal. The only people that didn't garden were the people that were too old to do it anymore. And they would have, like, their little, you know, berry orchards and stuff left. And it was kids like me that went around and maintained them for them. But gardening, like every other place, had a garden. You couldn't leave your damn windows down in the summertime because everybody's zucchini was coming in so fast. If you if you left your car window down, you'd come back in a bag full of zucchini. I already got a whole yard full of it. Number one thing people ate in August was freaking zucchini bread. It's something you could do with it. I mean, gardening was just, it was part of how you made it work. Cooking your own food. Like I said, I never saw a pizza get delivered. You might have went down to Palermo's for a slice or picked up a pie for the whole family once in a while, but most of the time people cook their own food. Hell, since half the food came from the garden or the field, you have to cook that. It didn't come from a trout stream, a lake, a field, the backyard. I mean, that was more than half the food we ate came from something we did ourselves. So, of course, you weren't going out to eat that much. So we knew how to cook. And we made our own stuff. I'm struggling right now with this because I'm trying to redo one of my outbuildings. And my wife wants me to buy these really nice cabinets and all and put everything in. And it would be the easy thing to do. And it would look good. And it'll last long enough. It won't be my problem when it's not good anymore. A couple grand and it's taken care of. But I'm sitting here going, I got all these tools I need to put away. so I can use those tools to build things. Why don't I build the stuff that's going to store them? I know how. It's a time equation. But there's just that piece in me. Thinking of my grandfather's old workbench. Now he told me the first thing that a carpenter built was his workbench. He wasn't even a real carpenter until he built his workbench. It stuck with me. We made our own things. First thing we did was we either fixed something we already had, we made something we already had better, or we built something if we needed it. And I think with all of that in mind, let's look at the weaknesses of high-density cities and settlements compared to the way, you know, the old normal that's not that old. 
The weakness of high-density cities and settlements to me is, number one, they are always import economies. New York City cannot survive a day without importation. Not a day. If you, if, if, that means that you're always, you know, your next thing is you're always subject to shortage. If you always, and see, we're seeing this as micro, macro, megacosm, right? So if you look at New York City being a, a high-density settlement, they're an import economy that's always subject to shortage. Well, the United States, by and large, has moved into becoming a high-density settlement. Most of our population lives in a relatively small area within our country. So we are subject to shortage. We're realizing how dependent we are on the imports from China right now. Many of us knew that, compensators. But how many people are like, holy crap, wow, I never thought of that. High-density cities and settlements are never self-sufficient. In any walk of life, the only thing that you can say you're self-sufficient is you can say, well, we make money, but money's fake. Money's fake. Money is an accounting mechanism that we invented so that we could store thermal dynamic energy known as labor and represent goods that actually have value. So when you say you make money, if you don't make stuff, if you don't grow things, if the way you make money is 100% based on the money system, you're never going to be self-sufficient because you can't eat money. You can only buy things with money. And if the things you're buying have to come from somewhere else, you never can be self-sufficient. And I see, I'm, I'm not big on the whole self-sufficiency from a standpoint of an individual because no individual will ever be 100% self-sufficient. And if you are, you're probably going to do without a lot of things that you'd rather have. But a society can be largely self-sufficient, at least in some areas. High-density populations can never be self-sufficient. They're always, therefore, parasitic. They're always like a giant tick. New York City is a tick sucking on the blood of America. I'm not putting down an individual that lives there as being a tick. But the, the, the larger view, if you back up and you look at the United States like an organism, giant cities like New York and Chicago... And Los Angeles and San Francisco are ticks sucking on the dog. It's what they do. They're parasitic. And because they're parasitic, and because they're not self-sufficient, and because they're subject to shortage, and because they're important economies, because they're that vulnerable, they're easy to scare, control, and manipulate. So whoever's in charge, all you got to do to control the whole damn country is control your ticks. You scare the ticks... The ticks will suck more blood out of the dog for you. See how simple that is? They don't teach that shit in school, do they? <laughs> Guess not. But think about the people who are the most scared right now. Who are the most frightened. We have to protect the old people. The old people aren't the ones that are most afraid. In general, the people that are afraid live in big cities and big settlements. Now, you can say it's because they're seeing more COVID. Some of them are. Some of them are. New York City's one thing. L.A., they don't have a huge amount of people dying of COVID, but they're just as scared because their import economy subject to shortage, never self-sufficient, always parasitic. Therefore, they're easy to scare, control, and manipulate. 
There are always small geographies that control large geographies. Because every society, in the end, is in some level a democratic society. From the biggest dictatorship to the most egalitarian, there's always some level of democracy. Because will of the people can be will of the people through a dictator, can be will of the people through a democratically elected representative. In the end, if you have enough people that oppose what you're doing as a ruler, you're going to go away. You're going to go away by peacefully being voted out of office or by being strung up from a tree and set on fire. One way or another, you're going to go away. It, look at history. History always repeats itself. If it's happened before, it'll happen again. If there's ever been a despot drug out into a street and tore apart by four horses while being set on fire and pissed on, it will happen again. It absolutely will happen again. But when you have this giant tick that is the giant cities that outnumber the people out in the fields, if you scare and control that population, and it's very easy to do, with a wave of the hand you can set in motion a wave. It's something known by those in power and in government forever. Control the cities, control the countryside for a time. Because this inevitably will result in resentment and rebellion. And while there's always more people in the city, those people are import economies to get all their stuff from the people that aren't there who resent them now. They're always subject to shortage from the things that come from the people who resent them now. They're never self-sufficient, unlike the people who resent them now. They're always parasitic, and you know what happens to a tick once you find it full of blood. It's burned off. They're easy to scare, control, and manipulate. Therefore, they want somebody to do their work for them. They want somebody to do their violence on their behalf. They want somebody to apply force on their behalf. So the number of people able to use force and violence, if it comes to it, even though there's more people in the city, there's always more people capable of doing the violence, not if there's a rebellion or insurrection. That's why cities get sacked. As we've just seen, they are most subject to mass epidemic and pandemic. They have little recourse. They have little recourse not just because there's so many people so close together and they spread so fast, but because they're import economies that are subject to shortage and never self-sufficient, always parasitic, easy to scare, control, manipulate. And the larger geographies who resent them are less affected by epidemics and pandemics. No matter how bad it is, it will always be that pandemic will be less of an effect in the plains of West Texas or the fields of Nebraska than it will be in downtown Atlanta. It's just the case. So we got all this going on while this is the reality on the ground about high-density civilization. And the dick punch just happens to be a pandemic. They produce excessive waste. There's no such thing as this. You can talk all the sustainable bullshit talk, greeny weeny talk you want about sustainable cities. They don't exist. You can't not be an excessive waste producer when you can't produce your own shit. They then they be, so since they are excessive producers of waste, they have no place to put the waste, so they become large exporters of pollution which exasperates the resentment felt by the people 
who they control in the larger geographies, who once again can cut them off of their importations, cause shortages, really make them feel the fact that they're not self-sufficient, burn them off as the parasites they are, put them in a state of fear, control, and manipulation by government, but eventually even that government cannot control the larger geography. Who says, go screw. We don't care what your laws are. We're not doing that anymore. And their entire economies are 90% or more service-based. They don't produce anything. How much manufacturing is in New York City? How much of your stuff comes from New York City? When's the last time you bought something that said made New York City on it? Including things made in America. They don't produce anything. And even if they produce things, they don't produce things. They assemble things. They don't make things. They don't convert raw materials into something usable. They don't make food. They don't grow trees. They don't make timber. They don't make lumber. They don't refine steel. Even if you go to the cities that you know were the old steel cities, like Pittsburgh... Pittsburgh looks more like a small town than a big city even today. They call it the biggest small town in America. People say that about New York City. They're retarded when they say it. You go to Pittsburgh, you'll understand what they mean. But the steel mill wasn't in downtown. Come on. You go to these places where they made things. They made them way out past the suburbs. Most of it, anyway. And where's the, where's the iron ore come from? Where'd the coal come from? To fire the furnace. Didn't come from Pittsburgh. You see how that works. They're based on service. Even the things they do make. The real making of them happens somewhere else. Which means their import economy is subject to shortage and never self-sufficient. Controlling larger geographies who eventually resent them and cut them off. One way or another. And they always lose. In the end, they always lose. Because the way you win a war is the fact that an army marches on its stomach and it's hard to starve a population that can feed itself and it's easy to starve a population that can't. This is the true oldest story known to man. You hear a lot of different claims about the oldest story known to man, but this is really the oldest story that is common among all societies known to man. Toby Hemingway who later in life as a permaculturist converted all the way to anarchy as a philosophy, uh, summed it up as the hill people versus the field people. The people that live up in the mountains versus the people that plow the fields in the lowlands. And that's just symbolic because there's other ways that happens. People live in the woods versus people live in the city. People that live in the, in the south, there's no hills. A lot of the south, but there's a swamp. Swamp people versus city people. It's the same thing no matter where you go. The indigenous cultures, despite every effort made to wipe them out, they still survive in pockets around the world. They've been through everything and more that the societies who have crumbled and disappeared around them have. And they've survived. Still native peoples in the jungles of Central and South America, but there's no Aztecs or Mayans or Incas. And the Spanish didn't get rid of all of them. Some of them just vanished on their own. The larger the population density, the more subject to the dick punch it is. So I think that there was already a move of people wanting to get out of these high-density populations. 
a move away from excessive taxation. Since they're parasitic, eventually, if you are a parasite, you have to parasite even your own. If there's enough ticks sucking on the dog, sooner or later some tick has to plow into another tick. That's your city government taxing you as much as a, you know, a state in a free place does. That's what that is. And people are moving away because how do you fix a place where it's okay for homeless people to shit on your front step? You leave. The society that allows that to occur is not ready to fix it. The people that aren't willing to deal with it need to leave and eventually the parasite begins to self-consume. That's why I say I think the old normal is becoming the new normal. That's the real new normal. The real new normal is that we're all going to stay in our homes and wear masks for the rest of our lives and never shake hands again and never go to a sporting event. This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. For what? We know now that the number of people that get this thing is at least 20x the number of people we see with it. When we do the math with that, we end up with something that has a death rate of about 0.1%. 0.1%. We're never going to be normal again because of something that kills 0.1% of the population. Do you realize how wrapped up in idiocy, lunacy, and being a sheep of a society you have to be to even begin to accept that as reality? You have to have been completely manipulated and controlled by a system to accept that. Our grandparents, God bless them, I'm glad they're not here to see this shit. Because they weep. It's this easy to control you. But I, I, I like to believe that there's enough of us that started compensating before the dick punch that we're already headed here, and all we're doing now is moving faster and telling others to join us. They'd say, you know, you know, I knew. I knew it was worth taking that nine-year-old kid into the woods with a machete and teaching him how to chop down a sapling and stake up a tomato plant. And look at the crazy way he's growing them tomatoes now. That's not the way I would do it, but he's growing them tomatoes. I'd like to believe that there are enough members of my generation that in spite of the fact that my grandparents and my great-grandparents' generation would stand here and look collectively at society and weep, they'd see this other segment of us and they'd say, I'm proud of them. I'm proud of them. They were worth it. They were worth it. They were worth taking twice as long to fix that car. They were worth it. In fact, they know what the hell a ratchet is. They know how to use a ratchet. They were worth it. In fact, they know what a jack plane is. They were worth it. In fact, they can walk into the woods with some string in their pocket and a pocket knife and a single fish to catch a fish. They were worth it. They're going to put this shit back together. I'd like to think they'd look around and they'd say, you know what? There were morons surrounding us as well. And we lived through smallpox and polio and the Depression and, and World War II and Korea and Vietnam. These guys got this. Hate it for you. You got a lot more morons than we did, but you got a lot more going for you. And you got a lot less problem. Just see to what we gave you.
and take somebody along with you and take your grandkids and take an extra hour to do that job so that they know how to do it. That's what I'd like to believe. And remember in all this, I'm not saying everybody's going to do it. Trends are never total. There's another quote for you today. Trends are never total. All it has to be is a significant number, not even a majority. Just a significant number, in the words of the song, figuring out there is a better way to do this. As I finish up today, the way to think about this whole thing and understand this repetitive cycle, the songs of the past are always released as a new cover version by new artists. Everything is a cycle. That was that last bullet point I put in today and went, Dummy, 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 your songs of the day this week are all cover songs. I didn't make this show because of that. John Adam didn't pick that because of that. It was just like, wow, wait a minute. Gee, everything seems like it's actually really a cycle. Sooner or later, things will line up. And that's the thing. You're not going to have society look like it did in 1985, Schuylkill County, Pennsylvania, ever again. It will never look exactly the same way. And when a new band does an old song, no matter how much they stay true to the original, it will never be the same. And frankly, I don't want it to. I don't want to go back in every way to 1985, which for me really was more like 1955. I don't want a world without the Internet. I don't want only three channels on the television set. I don't want my only side hustle as a kid to be working in a freaking junkyard or delivering newspapers. I don't want to not know about all the new ways to do things that there are to do things today. I don't want to not have the gig economy for those side hustles to happen. I don't want to not have modern solar technology that makes an off-grid cabin a hell of a lot easier to do today than it was in 1985. I don't want to not have things like online video where I can learn how to do things from the comfort of my own home. I don't want to not have GPS technology. I don't want to give up any of the things that make what we want to do easier. I don't resent any of the new things that we have. I don't resent any of the new technology that we have. I miss the mindset. And I wonder what our great-grandparents could have done with it. And then I realize it's up to us to figure that out for ourselves and to make damn sure that it's this generation of our grandchildren that are that next high in the four turnings. The next knowing generation. We'll just accept. We'll just accept that their children will probably begin forgetting, but we'll also be able to know that long after we're laying in the ground, Hopefully some of the foundation we left behind will be there for that next generation to compensate with so the following generation can survive the dick punch, whatever it is that time around. Because if you want to know what's coming, just look at what happened before. Everything in the universe is a recurrent cycle. That's why I think the new normal might actually be a lot like the old normal. I'd love to hear from you all about how you're making that happen in your own life. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. I want to remind you one of the ways that you can help support this show 
is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Everything you will find at tspaz.com I either own or I have owned, and if I needed it, I'd buy it again or I wouldn't recommend it. If I wouldn't spend my money on it, I wouldn't recommend you spend your money on it. Uh, today's item of the day is the Active Aqua Submersible 550-gallon-per-hour pump. Um, this is the pump that I've been using for almost everything other than my really big ponds. My really big ponds, I use a, a Danner 3,000-gallon-per-hour pump. Um, my aquaponics stuff, my uh, hydroponic stuff, my new habitat that I just built in the aviary for frogs and snakes and stuff, they all use this same little pump. And I'm a big believer in standardization on products because I have one of these pumps sitting on a shelf. And if any one of these six other pumps operating right now that is this exact pump were to die or stop performing well, I can pop and swap it in less than five minutes. By having standardization, all the fittings are the same, everything works the same, the cord length is the same, pop, swap, done, back in business. Whenever I put a pump in, I'm keeping at least plants alive. I'm probably keeping plants and critters in most situations alive. Dead pump can be dead critters. Dead fish stink, it's not a good day. Come home and all your fish are dead, not a good day. The longest I've had one of these pumps running is over six years. Almost all of that time continuous. I just moved it to a timed cycle, but that pump ran over six years every day, day and night. Still works as good as it did the day that I got it. It's a great pump. It's easy to service. It pops right apart, clean out the filters, etc. It's got a throttle on it. We can turn it up and down a full speed or lower speed. Uh, it's got an adapter so you can pull 100% off the bottom if you want to completely empty a sump. Um, and they just work. That's what I'm looking for. They just work. They're not cheap. They're not expensive. About 45 bucks for a 555-gallon-per-hour pump. You can get a 600-gallon-per-hour pump for $24.95. And if it lasts a year, you're lucky. And if it lasts two years, you should buy a lottery ticket because you're lucky, 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 lucky. So I believe in always being frugal, never being cheap. If I buy one in six years for 45 bucks or three in six years for 25 bucks, which one costs me less money for the life of the product? There you go. But the other side of it is what happens if you buy the cheap pump, you go to work, six o'clock in the morning, about 6.15 in the morning, pump goes, <laughs> dies. Just happens to be a 104 degree August day that day. You get held up at work, some shit goes on, you finally get home, you, it's about 9 o'clock at night, sun's just going down because it's late summer, you go in the refrigerator, pop a cold beer, psh, say, you know what, I'm going to take a walk outside, look at my fish, feel better about the day. Go outside, and as you approach your pond, you hear a horrible sound. Silence. There is no pump. You got dead floating fish, you got surface breathing fish, you go on operation, try to save them. You know most surface breathers are going to die anyway. It's a bad day, it got worse. Good quality pump, use two pumps in every system, have a spare pump, this shit doesn't happen to you. This is the pump that I use. Now, if you're like, I don't do hydro and I don't do ponds and all, do you do irrigation? Because one of these will run like six of those head sprinklers really nice. So if you have rain catch, this is... I'm just saying, man, there's a lot of uses for a pump like this. And I give you some other pumps for other uses in the write-up today. Remember, if you're on the Daily Mail, you will get um, a copy every day of everything I put on the blog. Just simple sentences and a link. No graphics, no tracking, no nothing. Just links, and you check out what you want to check out. Now, today I have a heads-up for you in addition to the item of the day. 
Everybody that's out there has been listening to me for a long time knows when it comes to technology, I love Anchor. Anchor is a great company. If they send you something that doesn't work, they will fix it. They will replace it. They will take care of it. They won't even ask any questions. If you're an immoral person, you can probably get free shit from Anchor by just lying to them. Don't do that. They're a good company. Treat them right. They'll treat you right. Um, but they have these great Bluetooth speakers, the Soundcore line. And they came out with some new ones, and they took an older model, and they put it on sale stupid cheap for 20 bucks back around Christmas. I sold hundreds of them. No complaints. I, I keep an eye on pricing and all the stuff I recommend. That one has not, and it's still like 30 bucks now. It hasn't gone back down below $20. It hasn't moved since it went back up. But they have a much better one called the, uh, the, the, the Boost. They're 20 watt Bluetooth speakers, um, really long battery life, fully waterproof. You can take them in the shower if you want to. Uh, and they're normally 60 bucks. And they're a good speaker for 60 bucks. They will, I would say they would run with quality. Most speakers in their class are going to be $100, 120 They sell them for $60. So they're around a half price. So that's great. They're on sale for $45 right now. You might want to get two of them. Why? Because they'll pair and then pair to your phone. So you have surround sound for $90, bucks, 20 watts each. And the little 12 watts ones I have sound great. My son bought a set of those, keeps them in his game room, plugged into the, uh, the power cords, So they're always fully charged, and he just basically has that room. That's a surround sound for the room for his music. Um, check them out. I just wanted to put that up. And they have a set of uh, Bluetooth headphones on sale for $30. Bucks. Uh, I went and bought one of them. I didn't really need them, but I'm like, that's a hell of a deal on those. And See, I like headphones are a great way to social distance, like even if it's not for COVID, just because you don't want people bothering you. You put headphones on, even if they're not on, you just pretend you don't hear people. They leave you alone. <laughs> I was social distancing long before it was cool, but check out the uh, the deal from Anchor today. It's a one-day deal. There's five items they have on sale, and again, it's in the Daily Mail, or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and look it up. Uh, again, get on the Daily Mail. If you're not on the Daily Mail, you're missing stuff. I promise you. I, I put stuff in the Daily Mail you won't see anywhere else, and uh, if you ever decide you hate it, just unsubscribe. With that, let's wrap things up. Song of the day today is uh, a cover, and it's Smoking in the Boys' Room. Even though it's a cover, it's an old song. How old is it? It's so old that in 1985 when this song came out, I was uh, I remember that it was played at the first school dance I ever went to. And it was actually done by some of my friends. They didn't sing it. They lip-synced. It was a lip-sync competition. And they dressed up like Motley Crue, and they pretended to do smoking in the boys' room. The thing is that... Uh, This song was originally released, I think it's 73, by Brownsville Station. So it's old and older. Um, this song, though, kind of fits today's show really well. Actually, it was supposed to be Friday's song, but I pulled it to today because it fits the show. Because it's really about rebellion. It's not real. If you think this song's about smoking, it just was a convenient thing to use because it was against the rules at school. I know so many people that loved this song. And specifically the Motley Crue cover version of it when I was young and stupid and didn't know it was a cover. Because um, when you're young, you're stupid. That's one of the rules, guys. Sorry. You young people, they get mad when we say you're stupid. We know you're stupid because we were stupid, too. We just didn't have social media and, and camera phones to record you know, every second of the day of all the stupid things we did. Fortunately for us, we can deny it. But I knew tons of my friends that loved this song. They didn't smoke, never smoked, never were going to smoke. Um, smoking was already kind of on the way out for kids. I think vaping really has more people doing that kind of thing today than, than smoking did, because smoking was waning hard by the 1980s. I had some friends that smoked, but it was a minority. 
of, of kids that I went to school with smoked, but there were a hell of a lot of rebels. And that's what this song was about. This song was about the fact that a lot of people just didn't really fit in with the format of school, the order of school, the control by power that school represented. We wanted to do our own thing. This song was about escaping that, having something that was your own that you could escape to with your friends. For the song, they used smoking. For us, it was really just screwing off. Actually, it was... It wasn't smoking in the boys' room. It was drinking beer after school. Drinking in the woods. It just doesn't... Drinking in the woods. It just it doesn't work, right? Smoking in the boys' room. See, that's why they did that, right? But kids have always had some form of rebelling. And society has always understood that in the end, the people that really make the change in society, they're always the rebels. They're never the conformists. Conformists are never revolutionaries. Conformists are never insurrectionists. Conformists never build the next great thing. Conformists never free entire segments of society. Conformists conform. Rebels rebel. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Woo! Yeah,